Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 25 to 36. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, where I am you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It is very difficult to not have your expectations met. Perhaps some of you are in this stage of life, and I am not at all saying that this is how I feel, but <laughs> where uh, your children are about to get married, and or they're dating, and they bring home this person, and in your mind, you think, no one is going to be able to meet up to my expectations, to marry my son, my daughter. And that's just sort of how it works. You never really meet up to the expectations of a parent because those expectations are so high, so lofty. Marriage itself, you have this ideal in your mind, especially because the way weddings work is you try to, not saying it always works out this way, but you try to get the perfect wedding. It's supposed to typify, in some sense, what your marriage is going to look like. But of course, we know that it's not always how it works out. You marry this man or this woman, and suddenly you think, whom did I marry? I thought you were like this, but instead you're like this. And that sense of disappointment, it can be pretty stark. Sometimes you might think, especially after you marry, you have a child, and the assumption is everything's going to go well. They're going to be healthy, and yet they're not. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with, and for students, I, I've been there, which is uh, you take a test, you think you studied hard, but by the way, you probably didn't study hard enough, right? You take a test, you think, I got an A, and it comes back and it's a C. Anyone ever experienced that in your life? And you don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> I've experienced that. It probably says I didn't study hard enough, but that shock, is actually so stunning in your heart. Expectations, there's a real danger to it because quite often we can be incredibly disappointed and sometimes we become angry if you're passed over for a promotion at work because 
someone else, the, the higher ups thought they were more worthy, more deserving. And in your mind, you were expecting it. That just leads to bitterness. And you say, I'm looking for a new job. So here's the challenge with all of that is that we are so, so expectant on what our lives should look like, what people around us should be like. And may I say that the Jews, we're hearing a lot about in the news today, they had a very, very particular expectation about what the Messiah was going to look like. In their view, the Messiah was going to overturn and uh, bring back a new empire, a Davidic empire, where David once reigned and the land of Israel just was expansive. And so living under Roman oppression, they expected the Messiah to be a military leader or a, or a charismatic political leader who's going to overturn the Roman government and bring back a new Israel, a new kingdom of Israel. So you can understand, perhaps, when they looked and they saw Jesus claiming to be the Messiah, not only were they disappointed, they were angry. They were so angry that one day they would kill him. That's what it looks like to have unmet expectations. It can go to that extreme. Today, what I want to do is to look at three descriptions of who Jesus is and who he describes himself to be and who the people think he is and how they actually are very much unexpected in their view of Christ and three characteristics that describe this. First, he is unstoppable. Second, he is unknown. And then third, as we see, he is unexpected. So first, the unstoppable Christ in verses 25 through 26 John records for us, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? The people here listening to him, specifically the leadership, they are furious with him. They want to kill him and people know it. It's very much well known because they make it known. And yet we're told here that no one can lay a hand on him. They can't touch him. They can want to kill him, but they can't. Why is it that they can't kill him? Is it because the circumstances don't provide, lend itself to? Really what John is saying is that it's actually not the right time. Not the right time for them, but it's not within God's timing. God's plan over us over world history, over everything that we experience, and specifically over the plan of salvation, it is unstoppable. Nothing can thwart God's plan. No one can kill Jesus unless he allows himself to be. And so John reminds us in chapter 7, verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. They couldn't touch him. God had this perfect plan to save sinners and the very evil actions of all these people, they couldn't do anything about it. Peter, later in describing the events that had unfolded in Jerusalem not that long ago in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, describes it this way. This Jesus, 
delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And here we see two features. One is God has a sovereign plan. His plan will not be thwarted. Yet within that plan, people act, and sometimes sinfully and really heinously. So they could, as theologian A.W. Pink describes it this way, they could no more arrest Christ than they could stop the sun from shining. That is the unstoppability of God's plan. And in a world like ours today, it is so important that we realize that. No matter how difficult life becomes or what the news says or whether there's wars or rumors of wars, never doubt that God's plan will come to pass. In fact, even if we were to face the worst persecutions and people were to say, no longer can you meet together, and if you do, you will be slaughtered for it. Do not think that even that means that God's plan is being thwarted. It cannot. You know, that very thing happened at the very earliest stages of the church. And if there was ever a time where the plan of God could have been stopped, it would have been then. Nip it at the bud. The church is just beginning. That's a time you want, as Satan tried, and as just every single opponent to Christ tried, to wipe out the church completely. If you know anything about Roman history, you know that it was some of the Roman emperors who were the greatest persecutors of the church. Nero, he did everything he could to stomp out the gospel and to stomp out Christ. It's said that he would take Christians that he would find, and by the way, he falsely accused for creating a fire in Rome, and he would place them in cages around his backyard, and he would have a party. And in these cages, he would light them on fire. And so they provided the light, these burning Christians, for his, his nice barbecue. Diocletian, a terrible persecutor of the church. He would take whole families, Christian families. Think of yourself, your spouse, your children, your grandchildren, grandparents, all crowded into one. He would lock the door and light the house on fire simply because you believed in Christ and you refused to recant. Oftentimes they would take Christians, put them on a rack, you know, crank up the, the parts where the limbs are held and literally separate limbs while the person is living. Fast forward to the French Revolution and French philosopher Voltaire, I think some of you know him. He declared early on in his life in 50 years, no one would ever remember Christianity because the French Revolution was an atheistic sort of uh, event. It was this idea that God had been the worst thing in the world and eventually there would be no Christ. But on the day of his death, with his very last breath, he was reported to say this, I am abandoned by God and man. I shall go to hell and you will go with me. Oh Christ, oh Jesus Christ. You could sense the agony of his soul. This realization at the very end of his days that there is a God, there is a Christ, and he will reign and he will rule forever. Something in our souls knows this so deeply because we are created in his image. And so often is the case. 
where you hear of atheists, such as Christopher Hitchens, or where they're literally saying, whatever you do, if you should hear me repent on my deathbed, ignore it. He had predicted, because he thought, if I believe that, if I say something, I might do that in my last moment. Why would you even say that as an atheist? Because in your soul, you know there is a God. And his plan is unstoppable. Sometimes it does seem like in your own personal life, in world events, that Satan, sin, and evil, they reign. They rule the world. But yet, Jesus says in John 16, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Not misery, peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. We must never forget that. That's not just wishful thinking. This is the promise of God through his word that his plan will be fulfilled, completed. Christ has won. The gospel is sure. Victory is ours in him. So therefore, no matter what comes our way, we need not worry or fear because we know his plan is unstoppable. He is unstoppable. Second, this Jesus, this Christ, he's unknown. And we see this in verses 27 through 31. But we know where this man comes from and when the Christ appears. And by the way, the word Christ there, it's not a last name. It, it's another word for, it means anointed one or Messiah, the Savior. So it's who the Jews were hoping would come. When the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. The fact that the people claimed to know him shows that they didn't know him. And that's exactly what we see in verse 27, right? They said, we know him. What did they mean by that? Well, what they mean is they know his parents, maybe. Maybe they knew Mary and Joseph. They knew that Joseph was a carpenter and maybe Jesus was a carpenter, probably was, for at least those early years before his ministry. They knew he's from Nazareth. And in their mind, the Savior doesn't come from Nazareth. He comes from Bethlehem, which we know he did. But they don't know that. So in their mind, they already have a preconstructed idea of who Jesus is, and they've already dismissed him. They've said, he's nobody. He's not significant. And this is exactly the way we think, perhaps, about him. Some of us here say, you don't need to say anymore. I already know all this. I've, I don't know if you've ever said that. I know all this already. You need to tell me more. I was uh, watching a YouTube video last night. It was of a guy by the name of Cliff Connectly. Anyone know who that is? Anyone? One person. Me and Thomas. <laughs> Cliff Connectly is an evangelist to college campuses. And so he would go to different college campuses and just start 
answering questions about Christ, about the Lord. And usually there'd be a group of students who would gather around and they'd be uh, asking all these questions. He was in this video, he's at the University of Texas in Austin. And uh, you might think that, well, that's the South. Everyone must be Christian. Well, Austin's sort of the exception within the South. And you watch him. And by the way, when I was in college, I went to Rutgers in New Jersey. And I saw him actually personally. He came there. And that was when I was in college. And here he is still doing the same thing. This was a year ago. He's about 60. And he's still vibrant. When I'm watching this, the people there were all saying, I know this Jesus already. You're not saying anything new to me. They had, in their mind, already dismissed him because the stories, we know them. And you see this man on this college campus engaging them and trying to show them, actually, they don't know him at all. But I wonder if that's us as well, that we are no different than the Jews here who are saying we know him. Nothing new, just let's move along. Some of you have been raised in the church. You've heard a lot of stories about Jesus. For those of you who are high school students, college students, you've been raised even maybe within this church. You've gone to gospel train. I can hear the kids right now. They're right up above my head. They're learning about Jesus right now. And they're going to be here one day and going, I heard those stories. Those stories. That's the way they describe it those stories. Oh, Jesus, you know, he walked on water. Jesus, uh, he healed the leper. And those are good stories, but that doesn't mean you know him. If you watch an athletic contest, watch the Super Bowl, you watch the football players celebrating a touchdown and having an interview afterward, you might know a lot about them. You could even read about some of their personal history. But there's a difference between knowing about someone versus knowing them. And I'm wondering if, just like these people, perhaps we have been spectators of Jesus. We've watched him in the arena. We've said, I know a lot about you. There's nothing much more left that I need to know. And Jesus is saying, you don't know me. If you look at verse 28, you actually need to put a question mark after that because that's sort of the, the thrust of what Jesus is saying. You know me and you know where I come from? That's a question. He's sort of saying, you don't know me because if you know me, you would place your life into my hands. You would trust me. You would surrender everything to me. They don't know him at all. In verse 29, we're told who he is. I know him, meaning the Father, God, for I come from him and he sent me. You would believe that. And if you really believe that, there would be nothing that you would want more than to know him alone. Again, hearing stories about Jesus when you were a child. Let me take it one step further. If you experience something about Jesus, if you experienced some sort of conviction, if you even cried, raised your hand at a retreat or a revival and said, I believe in Jesus, do not think that the raising of the hand means that you know him. Matthew seven twenty three. there are going to be many people 
who come to Jesus and say, I know you. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Some of you might say, I, I've seen him though active. I've seen miracles. But the problem is that the people here, they also saw miracles. In verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Most commentators, and I, I think when you look at chapter 6, then chapter 7, verse 31, the word believe isn't always true faith. There are times where people believe at one level, but do not surrender their hearts to the Lord. This same heart of a non-genuine faith is seen in John chapter 2, verses 23 to 24. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And again, this concept of believe in the Gospel of John is always sort of put into the point of some believe and truly believe. Some believe and turn away. Matthew chapter 7, 22, again. There are going to be many people who actually see miracles, who see tremendous things of the Lord. And Jesus will say, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And yet Jesus still says, depart from me. I never knew you. Matthew 7.22, Jesus is telling us that it is possible, listen to that, cast out demons, do mighty works in the name of Jesus, and still do not know him. So if that's true, surely it is possible to hear a bunch of stories, to raise your hand at a retreat, to be here on Sundays, to do many good works, to go on missions trips, to serve the poor, and still, on that terrible day, it shouldn't be a terrible day, but on that terrible day when you say, I did all this for you, and he says, I never knew you. You cannot rely on works to save yourself. You can't even rely on miracles. If you pray for a miracle and the Lord sovereignly should give it, do not rely on the miracle itself. You know, this past summer, as always, I had the privilege of going to Villafranco with a lot of the high school students. And one of the emphases that we had expressly told the students after the trip in our debrief was, do not trust your feelings right now. You feel convicted. You feel passionate. You say, I'm going to follow you, Lord. But if it's all about feelings and even a tremendous work, and it's not rooted on the faithfulness of God's word implanted in your soul and a desire to obey and trust him, those feelings will be gone. They will dissipate. It's just the nature of all of us. We are forgetters. And we forget our God daily, moment by moment. Um, it's, it's stark how quickly we can experience God's kindness and completely forget him. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying is we don't really know him if we're dependent on feelings, works, 
miracles, signs, wonders, all of this to uphold our faith. That's not going to. It is the Holy Spirit convicting us through his word to remind us of God's promises of his faithfulness and that constant understanding through his word. It is his word that stands forever. Definitely not experiences. There's only one thing that is needed and it is Christ himself. It is the fact that we can't do anything for him. He has done it all for us. He has given us his very righteousness while bearing our sins on that cross. And that means you realize you can't do anything. Therefore, we worship. That's why we gather every Sunday. We don't gather because we need to hear a message on how to be good parents, how to deal with my really difficult boss at work, how to have good friends at school. That's not why you should come on Sundays. It should be, I want to worship the God who loved me and gave himself for me. I want to recognize that I need that time and time again with other believers who also have that same desire. And from that flows the grace and power of God to remember his steadfastness, his faithfulness. So he is the unknown Christ, especially to these people. May he not be that for you. Lastly, he's the unexpected Messiah. Verses 32 to 36, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that he will not find, we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come? I mean, they really cannot understand him. He's, you know why? Because he's so unexpected. They had an expectation again. Their expectation was the Messiah was going to be a warrior, a political figure. He was going to be noble. He was going to be highly educated, higher than them. But he would have graduated from the best of schools. He would be wealthy, dignified. He would certainly have at least some sort of you know, group of people who, are, who look dignified, who are following him, not this ragtag group of disciples. So they couldn't get over the idea that he was so ordinary. In fact, he wasn't just ordinary, he was homeless. I mean, can you imagine that? A homeless Messiah. If you encountered such a person and you were there, maybe, just maybe, you would have muttered to as the crowd does in verse 32. The muttering is scoffing. It's being dismissive. And think about how easily we dismiss people based on, again, their education, um, the, what they've learned, what we think they know, their personality type, their experiences. It's so easy to dismiss people. And that's the fundamental problem of not just the Pharisees, but us, is this deep-seated pride that said, 
if you don't meet my expectations, then who are you? Why should I give you the time in my life? We expect Jesus, when he saves us, that our lives should be a certain way. How should our lives be? Comfortable? Prosperous? Again, if I was giving this message in a place like Zambia or in the DRC or in you know, the underground church in China, it, I wouldn't be talking like this. You know, they would get it. But in a place like ours, it is so easy to think that as soon as I am a Christian, I should continue on my merry way of everything in my life going exactly the way that I want. I don't want difficult people in my life. I don't want prosperity. I don't want a difficult path of a chronic health problems or maybe a job loss where I now have to struggle to make it financially. Sometimes we think that if God could just give us what we want, and for those of us who are basically struggling with besetting sin, meaning some sort of sin pattern that you find so difficult to shake, persistent anger, worry, perfectionism. Now, perfectionism isn't a sin, but if it turns to self-control, an idol of worship, then it is. A desire for whatever it might be that we want control over our own lives, it's controlling and it's so deep-seated. And how do we overcome that? It certainly won't be by trying harder. It has to be the Lord doing the work of causing us to see who he is and what he has done for us. And the means by which we overcome that besetting sin is not the taking away of it, but sometimes actually giving us even more difficult trial. If you have a hard time with anger, sometimes if you say, Lord, please help me with this sin, guess what happens? He brings into your life people who make you angry. And the reason is because that's how you are actually able to confront the darkness of your soul, not them. The problem for us is that we think it's everyone else's problem and it's not me. But if you have a problem with anger, be forewarned. If you're saying, Lord, please help me with this anger, then the Lord will say, I'm going to bless you by giving you difficult people in your life. And what I want you to do with those people is I want you to run to me. And every time you see them, run back to me again. See me on that cross. See what I have done for you. See that it is your anger that has caused me to be on this cross, which then allows me to go back to be gracious to that person again and again. And as you're dealing with this time and time again, he sanctifies us. He frees us slowly because We're killing that sin. God overcame all of our sorrows, our grievances, our pains, our sins through his suffering and death of his son. Surely, we can never actually believe that to overcome the effects of our sin would simply be magic angel dust or some switch. I don't know if you've ever felt Lord, can't you just give me a switch that will turn off and turn on something? Turn off lust. Turn off worry. 
But that's not how, if Jesus had to go to the cross to save us, how could we think that, well, the answer is just not having it anymore? No. The answer is dealing with this, the darkness of our own soul and t- running and turning to Christ as our only hope. Sometimes the only way we can see God is through pain and sorrow and suffering and sin and the defeating of that sin. This past week, I had the privilege of uh, visiting with Joseph and Kendra this, um, and some of you know that Joseph was diagnosed with um, acute leukemia, and it's very aggressive. We've been praying for them as a family, and they only heard a, a week ago, and you know, I, I asked him, actually, do you mind me sharing some of your story? Because it's really wonderful. I mean, it's terrible and wonderful concurrently, and he said, absolutely, share it. So I say this with this full blessing. You know, this past week, he was getting his IV chemo treatment. And um, they said it was the most difficult part of, his, of this process. It's, they're probably going to be in the hospital anywhere from, he, they said the earliest is December 11th up to about six months. And, you know, he's the primary caregiver of a family of six, young man, relatively speaking. And you're in the hospital perhaps up to six months, and that's only just being in the hospital. Then there's the long recovery process. I think we could all imagine what would go on in our hearts and minds in that instant. And so when he was sharing with me that IV uh, drip that he had with the chemo just going through into his veins to literally kill every single white blood cell so that... Um, the cancer would be completely eradicated, and, but yet he'd have no immunity. He said uh, he was, it felt like a darkness just coming over him, like a literally like a spiritual death coming over him as he was unconscious. And in the midst of it, he said he, he had this nightmare where he was in the middle of lava and he heard a voice and this voice, it was, he felt like it was Satan. And he said, Satan was saying, you know, you have been unfaithful to God. You have not loved him. And therefore, this is why you're getting what you're getting. He doesn't care about you. He's abandoned you. He doesn't love you. And he said it was the most fearful thing he's ever experienced. In a life that was successful, very similar to ours, to many of ours, where you're taking care of family, living life in the Bay Area, everything's going well, and this suddenly happens, and this darkness and these accusations just coming. The next day, his dad came and prayed over him, and he started reading to him Psalm 18. It's the psalm that we read at the call to worship. It's the song that we sang as well. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. He realized that his life had become so busy, told me, like all of us, 
busy climbing the corporate ladder and everything going well, slowly you forget. You forget the Lord. You forget you know, the impact of being in the body of Christ. But a few things that he told me, both he and Kendra, one is how thankful he is to be a part of the body of Christ at a time like this. And he was saying, I don't know how non-believers face something like this alone. This is the church. This is the unexpected God who comes and shows you things when you least expect it, not in a way you ever wish. Secondly, is something that uh, Kendra told me that was very interesting. She was saying how in the midst of, it was just a flurry within the past week and a half, and for those of you who've been in hospitals and have undergone severe treatment, and some, some of you have, I know, there's these ups and downs. One minute, everything's great, and then suddenly bad news, and then the bad news hits, and then good news, and you go up again. And she was saying, Kendra was telling me that in the midst of experiencing the, the good news, you just praise God and give thanks. And then the bad news comes, and then you forget everything that God had done. And so she was telling me that it's not just the big swath on the macro level you remember God and you forget God. It's even in the moment by moment by moment in that circumstance. But yet, to still see faith in the midst of that, that is the unexpected Christ. And to grow through it. The last thing that they said is, so... Joseph's dad, who's a believer, played this song that we sang, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, over him. And it was the one song that just hit him so hard to say, God is faithful, no matter what. I think when I hear, and this is not just their story, some of you have the same story, and I've heard it. I'm so thankful for it. But I would not be faithful to God's word if I didn't tell you that sometimes things don't go so well, I don't know the end of their earthly story. My prayer and our prayer should be for their family and for so many of you, and I'm praying for so many of you that the Lord bring healing. He provide a job. He'd make everything good. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes not. But God's plan is unstoppable. Christ has won. He will never let you go. And he does so in a way in which we cannot know. The way the world knows Jesus, it's, oh, he's a carpenter. He was born Mary and Joseph. I know all the stories about him. I grew up learning about him. I tell you, you do not know him if you have not fallen on your feet, on your knees and cried out to him and say, Lord, I love you. I lift my voice to worship you. And then to know that sometimes God meets, meets you in some of the most unexpected places. We so often have a hard time hearing him when things go so well. But when there is a dreaded disease that comes, when we lose our job, when we encounter a very difficult marriage where we didn't expect it and we're all alone as a husband or a wife and we're crying out saying, God, what, what happened? Know that in those spaces, the Lord is there 
and he has carried you. He will never let you go. And if you want proof positive of that, the cross of Christ. Jesus gave everything. So when you take of these elements, I hope you hold them tightly in your hand and you say, Lord, I know you're not letting me go. And I want to respond by saying, I don't want to let you go. Let's pray together. Father, for us who are so fickle, we get caught up with our emotions. Sometimes it's because we are convicted and experience you, and sometimes we go out at a football game, a homecoming, we're at a, a party at work, we're at a wedding, we're at a dinner with friends, and we just don't want to think of you. We don't want you to be a part of our life, and yet you still are with us. But in those moments, Lord, where everything seems to be crashing down, to know that you are faithful even when we're not, that while we were still sinners, that Jesus, you died for us. It is our great hope. We're so thankful for your promises. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.